Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Norman Wiersba. Dr. Wiersba is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Theology at Duke University, and he is a senior fellow at Duke's Keenan Institute for Ethics. Dr. Wiersba writes and teaches at the intersections of theology, philosophy, environmental, and agrarian studies. He recently directed a Loose Foundation-funded project entitled Facing the Anthropocene, which was a multi-year project that re-examines the assumptions of academic disciplines in light of issues like climate change, biotechnology, species extinction, and artificial intelligence. He is author of several books, including Food and Faith, From Nature to Creation, and The Way of Love. His most recent book is tentatively titled Becoming Human in a Wounded World, and will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Today, we'll be diving deeper into the topic of his recent lecture, Creation Through Christ, What Difference Does It Make?, which he presented during our Goodness of Creation and Human Responsibility Conference. His lecture and others from the conference will be made available through our website. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Wiersma. Good to be with you. Uh, it is a shame that uh, this is uh, this conference is, has been the first time for you and uh, I to become acquainted, because uh, we're neighbors. Um, you know, we are. I'm in Wake Forest. You're at Duke uh, in in Durham, uh, but I'm glad that this conference has given us the opportunity to to make an acquaintance. Yeah. Um, I appreciate so much your uh, your talk and what you had to say. Can you tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your journey? How how does one uh, end up being a theology and ethics prof at Duke? Uh, tell us, tell us uh, your spiritual journey, your academic journey, church sure. journey. Yeah. Tell us about so, it. I mean, there's really nothing that prepared me for this kind of a life because I grew up in a farming community in southern Alberta, in Western Canada, and. They were mostly German immigrants who came over to North America after the First and Second World Wars. And uh, our community was mostly German speakers. The church I attended was a German-speaking Baptist church. And I heard sermons and sang hymns in German till the age of 10, roughly. Oh, my goodness. It was a very tight, cohesive German community. And it was a, a really fabulous way to grow up. It was farming, it was working with animals, raising crops, a lot centered on the food. Our church was very close. We ate together a lot. And it was really important for us to see how, how the Bible informed day-to-day -day living. And so I worked with my grandfather on a pretty regular basis. And he's somebody who had so much of the Bible memorized. And so we, you know, he would just recite Psalms while we would be cutting hay or feeding cattle. Mm -hmm. And and that was sort of the context in which I grew up. And I thought I was going to be a farmer. It's really, really what I wanted to do. 
But I was becoming an adult in the 1980s, which is a terrible time to think about farming because the economics of it were just impossible. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll become a teacher and, and maybe have a hobby farm on the side or something like that. And, and when I went to university, which was just in the area where I grew up, I, uh, I fell in love with, with history. And I thought, you know, I want to study theology. I didn't know much about theology because in our church, it was all about the Bible. That's what you did. You read the Bible, you studied the Bible. But I didn't know theologians or anything like that. But in university, I encountered people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Kierkegaard and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I thought, this is amazing. And so I thought, well, I'll, I need to go to, to a divinity school or seminary to, to learn some theology. And, and I did that. I, I ended up going to, to Yale Divinity School. And it was mostly because of my history professors that, that helped that happen for me, because my family did not have university training in any of their backgrounds and and from there I went and did a PhD in philosophy studying French and German philosophy and the interests that I had were always on the borderlands between theology and philosophy how do we think about life's big questions and uh, that was a, a great place for me to do that and and once I finished teaching uh, some philosophy in Kentucky uh, where I got to know Wendell Berry and we can come back to him if you want to Yes, he was a really important influence because he helped me think about agriculture in the way I did philosophy and theology. And that was a game changer for me because I thought I had left farming completely behind and was now just going to do regular pro professorial sorts of work. But I started using this agrarian, tra agrarian, agrarian traditions. There's many of them all across the world. And I started writing philosophically and theologically around uh, agrarian concerns and some folks at Duke really liked what I was doing and 13 years ago they created a job where I could teach this stuff and the response has really been fabulous I mean so many of the students who now come to divinity school are wanting to think about issues of, of land and food and water because these are the fundamental means by which God shows God's love to us right that God creates a world that is a place of nurture. And, and for Christians to think seriously about how they can continue God's own nurturing ways, to think that you might try to do that without thinking about food and agriculture just didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I've been writing about those themes ever since. Yeah, uh, you not only talk uh, or write about a, a theology of agriculture or farming, you you write about a theology of food and of eating right so so what is what are we i mean we know biologically uh, what we're doing when we eat uh, we're we're taking in uh energy uh, uh but theologically speaking what is food and and what what is the purpose what what is it that the lord is trying to teach us through the whole process of 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 the meal yeah, so that's a great question. And I, and I think the first thing I want to say is that food should never be reduced to fuel, yeah. which is, of course, the way our culture wants us to think about it. And then the big question is, is it convenient? Is it cheap? Is it efficient? Is it tasty? Those sorts of things. And what I want my students and, and the people I engage with to understand is that food is actually God's love for us made nutritious. It's God's love for us made delicious. And, and what I'm talking about is not that big of a stretch. So think about when somebody prepares a meal for you, 
right? They think about what you want to eat. They think about what you like to eat. They invite you into their home and they put on a spread for you. And it's a declaration of love, right? It's their desire to see that you are nurtured and cared for. And this is exactly, well, not exactly, but it's patterned on God's own love for us in creating a world where, think about it, God did not have to create a world in which creatures have to eat. And God did not have to create a world in which raspberries and tomatoes can taste so good. But this is an indication that God wants us to be nurtured, cherished, and celebrated. And one of the ways that we do that is we share food with each other. We learn to nurture the very sources that nurture us. And when we do that, we participate in God's own nurturing ways. And that for me is so important because one of the things I want to resist is a kind of etherealization of faith, where it's mostly about what you think and maybe about what you feel. I want people to start thinking about how Christian faith is about what you eat. That's not to say there aren't important cognitive, emotional things to be thinking about, but let's broaden it out into this much more incarnate way of thinking about the life of faith, because that's the kind of God that I see working in Scripture. Well, in the New Testament, it seems to have been a very big deal. And of course, uh, part of that has to do with um, the, the Jewish dietary uh, restrictions uh, and uh, the New Testament uh, an announcement of grace and liberty uh, mm -hmm. concerning uh, so many things, including uh, what types of food, clean and unclean, might be uh, consumed. The the eating of food as an act of worship in many cultures. So we find we find there's a lot of 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 uh, in the New Testament that talks about a Christian, and you have Paul saying whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Right. What kind of? I mean, that's their setting. We're in our setting. Uh, how do you make that jump, that 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 hermeneutical leap? Uh, the uh, you know from from talking about the first century setting and saying this is how this applies to right. the twenty first century. Yeah. So when you look at and there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about with respect to the New Testament because there's just so many different themes that would need to be parsed out. But right, one of the big takeaways I think is that Christianity, throughout its history, says that one of the most central liturgical ritual elements of its shared life is the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what's going on there? Why, why do Christians gather around a meal where they eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, right? The bread of life. That sounds rather graphic when we say it that way, but Jesus I know, himself but did. This so. is exactly how scripture yeah. gives it to us, right? And, it, it, yeah. this is, and I love this because it, it again is a reminder the Christian faith is an incarnate, enfleshed faith. And, and this is so important because Jesus says, you are, I mean, John 6 here is what you need to have in mind because that's one of the go-to passages. But, but what John is communicating in there is Jesus is saying to his followers, unless you have me inside you in this most visceral manner by consuming me, right? The Greek there is tregain, which is to chomp and chew. We're supposed to chew on Jesus so that he's inside of us, transforming us from within to live the very hospitable, servant-like ways that he does. 
So that, that, that's sort of a foundational, uh, I think, theme that needs to be put out from the New Testament, that, that eating is one of the ways we draw into life with each other in such a way that we witnesses, witness to God's own loving, hospitable, caring, feeding, healing ways with others. Because ordinarily, a lot of us would eat out of the context of fear that we don't have enough, or out of loneliness and anxiety, and those kinds of eating don't create the beloved community. So recall when the Acts community receives the Holy Spirit, one of the signs that the Spirit is active in their midst is that we've got all these people, they're living together, they're eating together, they're sharing life together. And that becomes a template for how we're supposed to live into community, I think. Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to ministry in the church, the academy, or at home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the code CHRISTANDCULTURE all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. So, and I hear what you're saying, which is it's uh, you're you're presenting the beauty and the glory uh, that that comes with, uh, you know, just just the goodness of food. But we're in a fallen world, mm-hmm. and so many good things uh, are distorted in this present age and this present condition. And perhaps nowhere is that more clear in the 21st century than in food. Um, we we are in, uh, in in a situation in which uh, you know food has is being is being abused as as clearly as anything is in our culture. Right. Um, what's what's happened to us? How is this? Is this something personal? Is this something structural? Is this something institutional? Why is it that food seems to be spiraling out of control uh, in in our culture? Well, I, first of all, I think I would say that this is not particular to the 21st century. I think we've got indication throughout history that food has been weaponized. Food has become uh, an escape mechanism. It's become an instrument of power. I mean, it's not incidental that the first sin in scripture is an eating sin. It's the desire to have the world on your own terms. It's the desire to hoard the power of life for yourself. But none of that right? None of that is an indication that food itself is evil, right? It's a disordered desire that is always the problem, which is why throughout Christianity, you have this emphasis on the need for fasting, right? Fasting is never to be understood as people saying food is evil or food is the problem. Fasting is to help people understand 
that we can have such inordinate desires about food so that we become gluttons or we become stingy, right? So St. Basil the Great says and beautifully in one of his sermons where he says, people who fast are gentler in the world. They walk with a lighter gait. They speak kindly to other people because when you take fasting seriously, you learn to receive food as a gift rather than as something that is yours to hoard and privatize for yourself. So fasting becomes a way of learning how to relate to food properly. So we become the people who receive it gratefully and share it generously. Because again, food cannot ever, even in a fallen world, be described as the problem. The problem is what we do with food, how we grow food improperly, how we don't share it properly, how in our eating, we don't witness to the glory of God, but we try to glorify ourselves. And so, yeah, in the 21st century, we got lots of manifestations of that, where you've got an obsession with food exotica, or with, we can even say a pornographic relationship to food now. But that doesn't mean that food is ever the problem itself. It's what we do with it. The por a pornographic relationship with food. Now, that, that's a very vivid uh, way to say it. Can you expound on that? What yeah, sure. I mean, I think the essence of the pornographic gaze is objectification and control, right? One of the first things that you learn when you read scripture is that food is never something we control. It's a gift from God, right? So that's, we can say this in lots of ways, starting with the Garden of Eden, but certainly the story of manna from heaven, right? God is instructing the Israelites you're not going to be farming like the Egyptians, where you can just build these big projects, use slaves to enforce your will upon the land. No, you're going to be in Israel. And this is a place where you have to depend on me and rain, because this is not the fertile crescent. This is not the Nile River Valley. And so you have to learn to receive food as a gift. And what we do when we have a pornographic attachment to the world is we think we can objectify it and have complete mastery over it to make it satisfy our own desires. And of course, when we do that, when we objectify something that is a sacred gift, whether that be food, whether that be other people, whether that be creatures, right, we violate the very essence of that creature as beloved by God. So if we thought that food is a gift and not a commodity for us to control, we would receive it differently. We would think differently about how we grow the food. And we would certainly think differently about food as something that should, in our sharing with each other, witness to God's love in the world. That's a non-objectifying relationship to food. That's interesting how you put it that way, uh, as, because you're, when, when, when you talk about uh, the pornification of food and, and how it's a, it's a matter of control and ob objectification, um, I think that many would say that uh, food may be the area of their life that is not under control. Uh, they, 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 we do have such liberty concerning food because there is such a, an abundance of choices and food from a historical perspective is, is amazingly cheap. Now, uh, any person who has to do the weekly grocery shopping probably are rolling their eyes whenever I say that because I do know what it's like to to watch the you know the the amount 
rise uh, and just it's to astronomical figures as as we are checking out at the checkout counter. But in terms of the amount of one's work week that has to be devoted to to feeding himself or herself and one's family, it's a it's an amazingly small percentage. I mean, um, 100, 150 years ago, over half of the country uh, were farmers, and right. they were um, they were they were subsistence farmers. Uh, in in that they worked hard all week, they and their family, to hopefully not starve uh, right. over the winter time. So we have a completely different relationship. But for all of our success in controlling agriculture. It seems that that, like I said, many people would admit this is the area in which um, they feel out of control. Mm -hmm. they, they feel that they're being dominant, or to go as you kind of hinted, to go to the other extreme. We think of certain uh, disorders like uh, anorexia. That really, those are that's all about. That's a pathology about control. Right. So I think it's fascinating how you have. Uh, uh, described uh, food in this way. Um, so it, coming back around to, to your talk, uh, one of the things you talked about was the importance of agricultural systems that build up creation rather than damaging creation. What do you mean by that? And how could and how can everyday Christians uh, take part in activities that would make a difference? Yeah, and I think this links with something that we were just talking about. So just as we have sort of tried to commodify and control people and bodies, which then, you know, preys upon all sorts of insecurities, many of which are media manufactured, right? It's important to be able to say how the media manipulates the self-esteem of people, the image of people so that they will eat certain kinds of food because they'll look a certain sort of way, right? This objectification of bodies has been played out in agriculture in spades. So we have, especially since the Second World War, worked very hard to create an agriculture that produces a lot of calories, more than the world has ever seen, for sure. But it's an agriculture that is premised upon the kind of mastery of land, plants, and animals, which is destroying them, right? Soil fertility has gone way down, water levels, and water quality are way down. Agricultural workers are being treated at near slave-like conditions, right? It's almost impossible, right, for people who are doing good food production to make it economically because the system is all dependent upon maximization of yield. This is an agriculture that harms land, water, animals, plants, and eaters. Right, because this is a central principle that people need to understand. You can't abuse the land and not abuse the people who depend upon it. Those two always go together. And so for Christians to say, we want to take care of God's creation, the first thought shouldn't be, let's go take care of a wilderness preserve. The first thought should be, where are people actually working the land, which means agriculture? And how are they treating the land? Are they treating the soil? Right? Are they treating this medium that God breathes into in the Garden of Eden to create the life that is you and me? Is that soil being honored? Is it being nurtured so that it can better nurture us? And the fact is, so much of our agriculture is not doing that. So what I tell my Christian friends is, 
if you really want to care about creation, one of the best things you can do is start purchasing or advocating for healthy food, food that has been raised in a way that honors its life, food that has been grown on fields in which soil fertility has been a primary concern, right? Or supporting agricultural communities in which agricultural workers are paid a just living wage. If you do that, right? And I have this dream, it's a fantasy really, that if all my Christian friends in America, which is millions of them, decided that through their eating, they wanted to have a way to honor God, we would have a dramatically different agriculture and we would have a dramatically different planet. So many of the concerns about poisons in our water and our land, the abuse of creatures, that would simply disappear because to honor God, you have to honor what God loves. And what God loves, clearly, are all the creatures of this world, all the people of this world. And so one of the best ways to enact right, this mandate that God gives for us to love each other uh, is to make sure that the world they live in can continue to feed them and nurture them in ways that are going to be healthy rather than sickly. Dr. Wiersbe, your book is uh, that we've been talking much about its contents called Food and Faith from Nature to Creation. Um, uh, you have another book coming out uh, this year, uh, Becoming Human in a Wounded World uh, yeah. with Cambridge. Tell us a little bit about that before we go. Yeah, so the, the book is, is really my effort to try to give a diagnosis of where we are right now and show what a Christian response to it might be. So on the one hand, I want to understand how we've gotten to this place where we are creating an uninhabitable earth, right? Climate change is just one example of myriad examples. You know, we could talk about deforestation. We can talk about desertification, soil. Or, I mean, there's so many indicators that we're, we're just damaging this planet in ways that are going to make it very hard for hundreds of millions of people to live, okay? And this, this is just really important to know. I want to know, how did we get there? And I also want to look at how have we come to think about human beings? And so I talk also about post-humanism or transhumanism, where we're now getting to the point where we're so dissatisfied with our embodiment that we're looking at trying to transform what we are using artificial intelligence, varying mechanics, and also with this dream of actually terraforming other planets to live somewhere else when this planet can no longer house us. I want to say that both of these major developments in how we think about our world and how we think about humans reflect a fundamental distortion, uh, what the Indian writer Amitabh Ghosh calls the great derangement, um, because we have lost what kind of a world we're in and what it is to be a person living in it. And I think that the Christian way of speaking about the world as God's creation, human beings as God's creatures, and human life human work as participating in God's creative ways with the world become, I think, really powerful ways to address these two major concerns that I have on the, on the table. We've been talking with Dr. Norman Wiersbe. Dr. Wiersbe is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Theology at Duke University. And as I said before in our introduction, he's a senior fellow at Duke's Keenan Institute for Ethics. Dr. Wiersbe, Thank you for uh, joining us today. We appreciate hearing from you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.